course, I can't sing if I'm singing the solo, so I guess that's not a good argument. All right, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter number 7. We're going to begin reading in verse number 15 on down through the end of the chapter. Romans chapter 7. This is, of course, the Apostle Paul writing these words. He says, For that which I do I allow not. For what I would, that do I not, but what I hate, that do I. If then I do that, which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find in a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Someone reading that for the first time would probably have the response, What? <laughs> what did he just say? What does he mean? And there is a lot of confusion with a lot of people in regards to this. In fact, I, I know some preachers that believe this is speaking about Paul before he was ever become a Christian, but... Uh, that can't be because he says down here that that he delighted in the law of God. No unsaved man does that. So this is a saved man talking about the difficulties and the challenges that that he's facing. This morning I spoke about salvation and the change that it makes in our life. I said that it starts a change that will not accumulate until we finally get to heaven. You know, some people are surprised to learn that salvation actually comes in three tenses. Turn over in your Bibles for just a minute. I want to make sure you get this because it's important. In Second, Second Corinthians chapter 1, in verse number 10, Paul is writing and he says concerning the Lord, verse 10, who delivered us. Now remember, the word salvation means delivered. And he says, Who delivered us from so great a death, and doth deliver, in whom we trust, that he will yet deliver. You see, there is a past and a present and a future tense to our salvation. For example, as I've said so many times, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. That's justification. That's a done deal once for all, never 
never happened again. So we've been saved from the penalty of sin, our justification, but we are being saved from the power of sin, and the Bible speaks of that as sanctification. We're being sanctified. We're being set apart. We're being cleansed, as it were. And then we shall be saved someday, thank God, from the presence of sin. That is our glorification. Now, we are living in the middle tense. We haven't been glorified yet, regardless of what you think about yourself. You haven't been glorified yet. None of us are living a life of, of perfection. And we've all been delivered from the penalty of sin. But right now, we are, we are in a struggle. And as Christians, you know, we generally know what we ought to do. We have a desire to do it. That, that's what Paul is speaking about here. He, he had a delight in the law of God. He, he loved that which was right. But he admits there's times when he failed. And, and if he failed, certainly we're going to fail sometimes. You know, I guess you could say that we are willing, but we won't, if that makes sense. We're willing, but we won't. And that's nothing new because this is what Paul's dealing with. Look in verse 18. It says he has a desire to do good. Verse number 22, he delighted in it. But then in those other verses, he's telling us how he opposed himself. And he deals with this same situation in the book of Galatians when he talks about the struggle between the flesh and the spirit. And we, you know, we could spend hours talking about that. But uh, the, the point is, and what, what I want to get to is, why do we fail to do what we know that we should? Remember I said this morning the title of the message was The Way to Willingness. And tonight the title of the message is The Way to Wilderness. Uh, to, to willingness, uh, part two, if you want to call it that, but it's a continuation of our thoughts this morning. This morning, you know, where we started had to do with the fact that whenever we're saved, there's a transformation, a change that takes place, uh, and nothing in the world changes us and motivates us more than salvation. And as I said, it's impossible to be saved without a transformation of some kind taking place, but we all know from experience and we all know from observation that salvation does not yet make us perfect. Remember, we're living in the middle tense. You know, we're struggling with the power of sin in our life as long as we're here on this earth. That's where we are and that's the struggle that we're going through. So there are many times that we know what we ought to do, but we're not willing to do it. Um, so what can we do to become willing certainly if anything can be done we ought to do it don't you think i mean if god tells us to do something we ought to be willing to do it. it's what paul was saying this morning he was not disobedient to the heavenly vision he lived his life in obedience to the will of god when we come to human nature and what motivates people there are a lot of people got a lot of different ideas about that some motivational speakers have made millions of dollars trying to promote their views. And, you know, the large corporations, they hire these people to come in there and try to pump up their employees and motivate them to do a better job. But we're talking about something a whole lot more important than business. We're talking about the kingdom of God and the Christian life. So 
what motivates us? What is it that motivates us? What causes change? What makes us willing? That's the bottom line. What makes us willing? Well, we all know there's several things that can motivate people. It might be fear. Some people could be motivated by fear. I, you know, you, you could take a 12-gauge shotgun and you could motivate people to come down the aisle every service. You could motivate them to be baptized like, you know, well, I didn't bring my clothes. Doesn't make no difference. Stick that gun in their back, you know, and uh, they'll go up there and it wouldn't bother a bit. You can motivate them with fear uh, of different kinds. You can motivate people with pain. You know, the, you take a, the, these cops, and David could tell you, I'm sure that it, it's happened to him when you're arresting someone and grab your wrist or your thumb, and, and all of a sudden, you know, somebody that is struggling and obstinate against them, all of a sudden they're willing to comply because it's amazing what pain will do. It'll motivate you to do things ordinarily you wouldn't do. Uh, it might be need. If you have a need, that motivates you to do something, you know, uh, if you're hungry, that'll motivate you to work or, you know, earn money, do something to get food. Uh, that's a great motivation, uh, you see. Uh, whenever we're in need, we generally want to satisfy that need. It might be, it might be reward. You can motivate people to do something. Back years ago, whenever we was right in the middle of all of this church growth uh, movement and what have you, and churches were just busting their gut trying to outdo each other in growing churches, having contests between churches to see who would get the most in Sunday school. And so they'd have Bozo the Clown and Zulu the Gorilla, and they'd put uh, $100 bills under the lucky seats, you know. So if you happen to sit down the right seat, you get $100 that day and stuff like that. That's a motivation to some people, you know. And what some people, you know, would not respond to for, let's say, a quarter, they'll respond to if it's $10 or $100. And so you can motivate people with financial gain. Now, salvation motivates us, but sometimes there's things that get in our way and hinder our willingness to do the will of God. Things that motivate us to do the opposite of what we really want to do. Surely, whenever we just read here from Romans 7, you can see that something happened there with Paul that all of a sudden the things that he wanted to do, he, he wasn't doing. The things he didn't want to do, he found himself doing. That Look, that can happen to all of us. It does happen to all of us in some way. It might be, it might be that we are motivated in some way by fear. In other words, fear can so overwhelm us, it'll cause us to do things that normally we wouldn't do. Or it can cause us to not do things that we ought to do because we're afraid. Just overcome by fear. It can motivate you to say no to God. It might be pain that motivates you to be unwilling to do what God wants you to do. Now, it shouldn't happen, but it does happen because pain can distract us from what is most important and make us unwilling to do things that, that normally we would have a desire to do. But because we're in pain, we no longer are willing to do it. Uh, it might be, again, need, as I mentioned earlier, that all of a sudden our attention is diverted to some need in our life. And so what do we do? We change the course of our life as a result of that 
perceived need. It might be reward, that is, I'm talking about gain or benefits in some way that cause people to ignore what they should be doing in order to get what they want. You might be surprised if you knew how often the size of a preacher's salary plays a role in where he pastors. I wish I could tell you that never happens, but it does. And I know I know that because I know a lot of preachers and I've listened to them. I've heard what they said. You know, I've had preachers tell me, well, I'm going to go candidate for a certain church, you know, this next Sunday and what have you. And, and they get to talking about the salary and and... And, and then they get start usually explaining that, you know, I have an obligation to take care of my family. You know, well, of course you do. Absolutely you do. Best way to take care of your family is make sure you're in the will of God Amen. instead of seeing what the salary package is. And, and I know preachers, if they didn't have a retirement fund, didn't have, if they didn't provide a car, if they didn't have all of their ducks in a row and keep them, you know, stable financially, they would not even consider going and preaching in that church. And that's why many years ago I started out this way. Every church that I've gone to, I've never wanted to know what the salary was. I don't want that to be a factor in the decision I make about where I go. Uh, you know, I just believe if I go where God wants me to, to go, He'll take care of everything. And He has. He's proven Himself faithful. But you see, preachers are not the only ones that fall into this trap. Because sometimes others are lured away from the will of God by the promise of a reward. You know, it might be in the form of a raise or a promotion in some company. And the, the kicker is you're going to have to be transferred out of town. You're going to have to find a new church. And there might not even be a good Bible-believing church in that area. And you'd be amazed how many people never take into consideration, you know, what God's will is when it comes to where the Lord wants them to be a member at. And I, I've often said, you know, your three most important decisions in life, number one, is concerning Christ and being saved. Number two, who you marry. Number three is the church that you attend. And we ought to be convinced that we are where God placed us and we shouldn't let anything lead us away from that. You you expect that out of me as a pastor. You expect that out of Brother Kenneth, you know. If you're convinced, well, you know, God laid it on our heart to call you as pastor. And, uh, you know, we don't care if you got to have a quick yard sale and give away stuff and get rid of stuff and hurry up and get down here, move your family away from their grandparents and all of that, move, move them down here to Texas. I mean, uh, after all, you, you're a man of God. You ought to be willing to do that. Of course I should. Why don't we all have that same attitude when it comes to the Lord's church? You know, that we are where God wants us to be. And I got news for you. I'm not going to let some disgruntled church member run me off. You're not going to run me off by getting mad at me. I mean, you might come mad every week and not speak to me or whatever. But I'm not leaving this church till God says it's time to go. You ought to feel the same way. 
somebody says, well, yeah, you know, preacher, but uh, you, you just don't know. Some people have been giving me a hard time. Some people don't like me. They just ignore me. So what? They nailed Jesus to the cross. Get over yourself. Amen? If this is where God wants you to be, expect it to be difficult at times. Don't let the promise of something better lure you away from where God wants you to be. So what makes people willing? Well, I've just mentioned all of these different things that are motivating factors in our life. They can be motivation in a good way. They can be motivation in a bad way. But I'm going to cut through the chase and get to the most important motivational factor in the life of a Christian, and that's love because it has no equal. Here in Matthew chapter number 22 and verse 36, of course, you're familiar with that where, where you know, the Lord has asked the question about what's a great commandment, you know. Well, the Lord said to love the Lord thy God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. Now, that's, that's the first and great commandment there. But the second is like unto the first that you love your neighbor as yourself, you see. So he reduced all of the laws, all of our responsibilities. He reduced all of that down to two things that are basically tied together. Because you can't keep the second if you don't keep the first. And so he reduces all of that down to those two things, loving God and loving others. And when we do that, everything else tends to fall in place because, you know, love just naturally put the needs of others ahead of ourself. Love has the, has the desire to please its object. We serve the Lord. Why? Because we love the Lord. We want to please the Lord. Love compels us to obey the Lord regardless of the cost, the circumstances, the conditions, or the consequences. I said this morning, Paul, from the very beginning of his Christian life, was told that he was going to suffer many things for Christ. There was going to be severe consequences to him doing the will of God, and he didn't back down. He stood his ground. He did what God wanted him to do. You see, love makes us willing to do our duty, even if it's difficult and even if it's dangerous. So that being the case, then it's crucial that our love is always increasing. By the way, that's exactly what the Bible demands. We'll see that in just a minute. But how do we do that? How do we do that? You, you, you know, so many times we think, talk about people that are unfaithful, members that are unfaithful. You can't get them to be regular in their attendance. You can't get them to get involved in, you know, in any kind of ministry whatsoever. They're just a member. They've got their name on the roll. And, and that's it. What, what's the problem? The problem, I don't care how you look at it, the problem always gets back to this matter of love and a lack of it in that case. They might truly be saved, but there's something missing, something lacking in their life. So how do we, how do we increase our love for Christ to the point that we're willing to obey Him fully, and cheerfully. That's important, by the way. Because we're not really obeying Him fully if we're not obeying Him cheerfully. God, you see, measures the motive behind our ministry, behind what we do. 
And the answer is not a secret because God doesn't command something from us without showing us the way. Between the world and the flesh and the devil, there's always going to be opposing forces working against us, trying to hinder our progress. So what do we do that we can resist the evil and yield to God? Well, in the first place, we need, we need to always feel a need to love Christ more. You know, when you pray, it might be something like, Lord, I love you, you know I love you, but help me to love you more. I mean, that's, that's the way we ought to feel. God pity us if we think we love Him as much as we should or as much as we could. There ought to be that constant desire for our capacity for loving God to increase. Look in Philippians chapter 1 and verse number 9. And here again, Paul is dealing with this exact issue beginning in verse 9. He says, In this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. That's clear. And by the way, he says basically the same thing whenever he's writing to the church at Ephesus. So never should there be anything impede our progress in this that we ought to be abounding in love more and more. There ought to be an attitude of desperation on our part. You know, not just a desire, but a desperation that drives us to pray because prayer is a you know a part of the solution the psalmist said in psalms 37 4 delight thyself also in the lord and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart i wish i had time to stay there for a while delight thyself also in the lord what paul say he delighted in the will of god that's what he delighted in god's will and here he says, if we delight ourselves in the Lord, he'll give thee the desires of our heart. What is our desire? Paul talked about those two things, delight and desire. And the psalmist mentions both of them in the context of prayer, telling us God will give us what we desire whenever we pray with that kind of an attitude. And I've I got to tell you, there are a lot of folks, Tim and I was talking about it earlier there, you know, there's just a lot of people that just don't seem to really enjoy their relationship with Christ. I, I, I don't understand that. I, I really don't. I never have. I never will. How you could have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ and not be a joyful Christian. Uh, th- does that make sense to anybody else? I, it doesn't make sense to me. So, Paul says here, abound more and more in love so the question is is that happening to you i'm not judging you i'm asking you is that happening to you is your love abounding more and more think about it i mean don't ask somebody else you know about their situation but ask yourself is my love abounding more and more because that's the key to all of it, if love is the great motivator, 
And if we've got a problem with being unwilling to do the things God wants us to do, then the, the increase of our love is the key to having a more willing heart. Does that make sense? I, 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 hope, I hope I'm getting through. I, I'm not always as clear as I want to be, but I, I hope that makes sense to you. Let, let, me, let me use one church as an example of what I'm talking about. And the church I have in mind is the church at Ephesus. And this was a church that was dear to the heart of the Apostle Paul. You really see that there in Acts chapter 20 where he's about to go to Jerusalem. And he knows because the Holy Spirit is revealed to him. And he knows what awaits him, that he is going to be falsely accused and beaten and imprisoned. He knows that. He's meeting on the seashore with the elders from the church at Ephesus. They're begging him not to go. They know God has revealed to them what is going to happen, and they're begging Paul, please don't go. Just stay away from that place because you're going to get hurt. And he let it be known in no uncertain terms that he did not count his life dear unto himself, but he was on a mission. Listen, you say, well, how could he have that attitude? God promised him he was going to preach in Rome, and he hadn't got there yet. You see, he was basing his faith on the promises of God. And so there was a special bond between him and the church at Ephesus. Look in Ephesians 6, 4, and, and here as he ends the letter to the Ephesians, I want you to know how he ends the letter, verse 24 of chapter number 6. He says, Grace be with all them, now hang on to this, Grace be with all of them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. You see, that was his final prayer there for them in this letter. That was his desire, that they would love the Lord Jesus Christ and be blessed as a result of that. Love the Lord, notice he says, in sincerity. Now let's move ahead a number of years, maybe 25, 30 years, and little little Isle of Patmos, and John the Apostle is there, and God is speaking to him and through him, and Christ actually is using him to write letters to seven churches. The first church that he writes to is the church at Ephesus. And as he begins the letter, go ahead and turn over there. You might not be familiar with it. A lot of times I just assume everyone knows about it, and they don't. But, but I want you to notice here in the first three verses, he commends them for the good things about the church. Verse 1, Unto the angel of the church at Ephesus write these things, saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them to be liars, and has borne in his patience, and for my name's sake has labored and has not fainted. Wow, I, you, look, you talk about a great church. This is it. This is awesome. You know, if I was looking for a church home back then, I'd say, that's it. 
That's it. He is commending them all of these good qualities. I have an entire sermon I've preached, no telling how many times, uh, about the letter to this church, and I'll do it again maybe soon. I don't know, but I don't want to get distracted by all of that. But notice he's pointing out all of the good things. He's commending them. But something happens when we get to verse number 4. And notice now he's condemning the same church that he commended. And here's what he says. Nevertheless, you see, our good things never compensate for our bad things. Never make up for that. You know, somebody says, well, yeah, I realize, you know, that, yeah, I did this, and I know it was wrong and so forth, but I compensated by doing something good. Well, that doesn't make it right. Notice what he says, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. Boy, you know you're in trouble. When, he, the, when the Lord has something against you, you're in trouble. And he says, I have somewhat against thee. And here it is, because thou hast left thy first love. Do you see the connection? He wants us to see that they failed exactly at Paul's point of concern. They, they had left their first love. And that's exactly what the problem with a lot of folks today. And uh, we don't want to admit it. Now, notice he didn't say they lost their first love. They left it. They left it. And it happened, it happened uh, to the church because it first happened to the members. Keep that in mind. You know, as the members go, so goes the church. He wasn't saying that, notice, that their love for him had been replaced, that they've lost it. It's been replaced by something else for which they have a greater love. It doesn't say that at all, because a true Christian never loves anything more than Christ. Let me tell you, if you're here tonight and you've been saved, you might not be doing what God wants you to do. It might be that you've made a huge error in your life. You've messed up over and over again. But I can tell you one thing about yourself. If you're really saved, somewhere deep in the recesses of your heart, you love Christ more than anything else. It's not showing through, but it's true. You know, we think about uh, Lot, and we think about what a rascal he was in some ways, but the Bible describes him as being righteous Lot. And all of that time down there, his righteous soul was vexed by the situation that he was in. So a lot, of, a lot of people are in a similar situation in that they are out of the will of God. They're out of the will of God because they have, they have left their first love. Well, you say, well, what does that mean? Well, it could mean a number of things. It could be said they left their first love in the sense that they've been, they've been distracted from it. They love Christ more than anything else, but something has become a distraction to them. They've, they've left it. They've lost their focus on their first love. It might mean that they are not as expressive of their love as they used to be or as they ought to be. That, that, you know, yeah, they, you know, they love the Lord, but they're no longer expressive of it. It might be that it means that that their love has ceased to grow. In other words, it, it stagnated. It's just stuck right there. 
And the Lord says, look, this is a situation I cannot tolerate. And he describes the nature of the problem, the seriousness of the problem when we get to verse number five and tells him, look, you either fix this or I'm going to remove my candlestick out of this place. In other words, I'm going to remove my witness out of this place. So it's not like something, well, you know, uh, you know, that, yeah, you're not everything you ought to be, but that's good enough because you're better than most churches. The Lord didn't have that kind of attitude. He said, you got to fix this. And he, he, he tells them how to fix it. And I, I'm just going to mention a couple of things and notice the things that he mentions. First of all, he says, remember. Remember. You know, it does us good sometimes, I think, to go back to the, to the day that we trusted the Lord as our Savior. And I, I've often said, boy, when I walked out of the Community Baptist Church in Willard, Missouri that day, it... I, I can't even explain it. I, 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 I don't know how to explain it. It's like a thousand pounds have been lifted off of my shoulders. I had a joy that I didn't even know existed. I just uh, There was a peace in my heart unlike anything I had ever experienced. And, and I think it's true of every Christian. I, you know, we're not all emotionally wired exactly the same, but boy, when you get saved, all of a sudden... That we don't have the experience. Paul did, but we all have an experience of some sort. We're moved emotionally as a result of what has happened in our life. Does us good to remember that because our love ought to be growing. Our devotion ought to be growing more and more all the time. And if we would remember and think back to that day, and we need to ask ourselves, am I growing in my love for the Lord because a lot of times, if we're honest, we'd have to say, you know, I've so neglected my spiritual life that I'm just not growing like I should. So he says, remember. Remember how it used to be. Remember how it ought to be. And then notice that next word he says, and repent. Do something about it. Change your mind. Turn around. Get this straightened out. And that puts a huge obligation on our shoulders when the Lord says for us to repent. Repent. Because a lot of times, you know, we look at all of the facts and we even draw some conclusions that, yeah, my unwillingness, my unwillingness to do what God wants me to do is because I've allowed my love for the Lord to grow cold. I've drifted away from it and been distracted from it, not expressive of it. And as a result of that, I become reluctant to respond to the commands that God gives me. Now, how, how in the world are we going to fix that? And I'm going to sum it up real quick. Because we love Him. Now think about it. We love Him because He first loved us, Right? Had He not loved us first, we had never loved Him. It was our realization of His love for us that drew us to Him. We love Him because He first loved us. That being true then, if we're going to renew our love for Him, we need to review His love for us. Review it. Now, I know what maybe you're thinking. You're thinking, oh yeah, but... It's got to be more complex than that. It's got to be more difficult than that. It can't be that simple. Look up there. 
Look, look. That's pretty easy, wasn't it? Right? It didn't take much effort at all to shift your focus from one thing to another. Now listen to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter number 3. 2 Corinthians chapter number 3 and verse 18. He says, but we all, he's speaking in the context of Christians, but we all with open, that is with an unveiled face, not like it was with Moses, with a veil in between, but we all with an open face beholding as in a glass that we would refer to that as a mirror, looking into a mirror, a glass, and beholding, notice what our focus is on, beholding the glory of the Lord. Remember Hebrews twelve two, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Same thing. Looking in the glass, we behold the glory of the Lord. Notice, and are changed. It doesn't say we change. It says we are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. So it's not so much that we bring about a change in our life because... You know, it's like whenever we think about that command, forgive your enemies, love your enemies. Are you kidding me? I mean, I've had some enemies I, I couldn't love, didn't want to love, didn't want to learn how. You know, what do you mean? Love them and forgive them. Are you kidding me? And the only way it could happen is not for me to do it because I couldn't. It was for me to allow God to do it through me. Bev and I, we, you know, we, we, we could stand up here and give you a lot of examples over the years of situations that we've been in in churches to where, believe it or not, where people didn't like us, really didn't like me, you know, but when they don't like me, that affects her, and, uh, and you have to deal with it. You're the pastor. You can't be like... I was talking to somebody here the other day. He said, you know a certain preacher? I said, yeah, I know him. He's the one that went and got in a fist fight out in the parking lot uh, with one of the members. I mean, I won't mention his name. Nobody here knows him except Scott. But uh, he was that kind of a guy. Boy, you crossed him. We'd go outside and have some fisticuffs. That doesn't settle anything. The only thing going to settle things is for us to learn to let the Lord love people through us. That happens by us, notice, beholding, beholding. What are we looking at? What are we beholding? What are we focused on? The Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, you know, people say, well, you think reading the Bible, you think reading the Bible is the key to everything? Well, not necessarily because you can read your Bible and never learn anything if you're just reading your Bible. It's when you get in the Word of God and study the Word of God, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. You know, we sometimes we wonder, how could Paul do what he did? It's because of the greatness of his love for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he said to the church at Ephesus, and I've, I've got to read this in chapter 3. Here was his prayer for them. Verse 18 of chapter 3, that you may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height and to know the love of Christ which patheth knowledge 
that ye might be filled with all of the fullness of God. Now unto Him that is able to do exceedingly abundant above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. Unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. The key to change begins with salvation, having a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. But there are no other gimmicks and tricks on this earth that will help you be an obedient Christian if love for the Lord is lacking. And that's why he said to those churches, I want you to be abounding in love. If tonight, by chance, you're here and... It might be that regardless of what the factor was, the fear factor or the reward factor or something has made you reluctant to respond to God's will and you're dragging your feet spiritually. And tonight you've come to realize that the real problem is simply that you've let your love for the Lord grow cold and that that needs to be rekindled tonight and and. and let me, let me tell you, we, we never come to the Lord with a heart of sincerity and it be in vain. When we recognize our problem, when we come to Him, that's why He told them, He said, I want you to remember and then I want you to repent. I want you to straighten this out. And, and, and the biggest favor you can do for yourself is to do that tonight. That's the key to us being willing because when someone loves the Lord like they ought to and their love for the Lord is abounding, they don't need any sermons and they don't need any lectures regarding, you know, trying to motivate them to do something. All you have to do is tell them what needs to be done and they're there. Why? simply because they realize that's what God would have them to do and they love the Lord to such an extent that they're not about to ignore it. So I pray to God that can be true of me and you and all of us as a church. And if it is, uh, there's no limit to what God can do right here in this church. Amen. Let's all stand. Father, we pray tonight that you'll Bless the reading of your word. We pray tonight that you'll help each one of us to honestly really take time to examine our hearts. And Lord, we know that if it was left entirely up to us, we would fail miserably. But I pray the Holy Spirit might reveal to us those things and areas of our life wherein we failed you and that we might be honest enough to deal with it tonight. And Lord, that we might yield ourselves to to your will for our life, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.